all morning. Guys, there could not have been a more appropriate song that was just sung. In light of what we're getting ready to talk about this morning, we have been in this concept and talking about this topic of suffering for three weeks. I know, Eddie, you said death isn't like the greatest thing to talk about and it's super like morbid and depressing, uh, but we had to face things like that. Same thing applies to something like suffering. We've all experienced it. We've all felt it. And we need to understand it. And I, I want to start this morning, though, with uh, you putting your imagination caps on. So if you would grab your imagination caps and you would set them right on your head. There you go. I, I saw some participation over here, not so much here or there. So let's try this again, maybe. And we're all going to grab our, our imagination hats and we're going to set them on our heads. You won't have to think too hard about this, guys, I promise. I want you to imagine with me for a moment. I didn't say put the hymnal on your head, Ethan. I just, I, it's imagine. He's using his imagination way too much. Imagine with me, if you will, a moment that is etched in the minds and memories of almost every person in this room. That moment is the experience of a, get this, I'm just, I'm going to stop for a minute and just imagine it myself before I say it. Mm. A fresh baked cookie. Oh, there we are. I heard it. Mm -hmm. That just comes out of the oven. A, a batch of brownies, a, a cake that mom or grandma has baked, and it's just coming out of the oven. I mean, if you, again, if you close your eyes, you can, you can almost smell it. Like, if you think hard enough, you can almost just, that taste is in your mouth. Guys, for me, there is almost nothing like a batch of warm, just-out-of-the-oven chocolate chip cookies. I mean, the soft, gooey consistency of such a cookie is, is to me, it's simply unmatched. There's nothing that's going to beat it. And now that everybody's hungry, you still have like another 30 minutes before I let you go to lunch. In fact, as the story goes, I loved baked goods. I loved chocolate chip cookies. I like sweets, period, so much that my mom told me one day when I was little to keep my hands off of the cookies. And being the little smart, ingenious guy that I was, I said, fine, I will keep my hands off the cookie. I will just navigate that, and I will use my tongue to touch the cookies. Guys, there is only one problem. As great as a fresh, warm chocolate chip cookie is, when that cookie comes out of the oven, what is it? It's hot. I mean, how many times have you, in your haste to get something out of the oven, put it in your mouth and scorched every single taste bud, scorched the inside of your mouth, and it was totally worth it, wasn't it, right? It's totally worth it. Or worse yet, there's the inconvenience of a, of a pan or a hot tray that those cookies came off of that get in the way, and they remind us of the battle that is constantly there between humans and heat. And guys, I tell you, every time heat wins. And here's what I believe about not just cookies or brownies or a cake that comes out of the oven, but I believe it about life and this concept of suffering. Heat has a way of humbling us. I mean, I don't know, I've never seen a kid or a person who just walks up to a hot surface and just puts their hand on it and just says, hmm, I just showed you, didn't I, heat? No, always, heat wins, and it humbles us. Have you ever had a moment in your life, guys, where you have been truly humbled? And I'm not talking about just like a little humbling. I'm not talking about something small that just knocks you down a peg or two. I'm talking about a humbling that has completely knocked you off of center, that has knocked you off of the high place that you occupy in your life. 
It's highly likely most of us have had this experience more than once in our life. We know all too well what it means to be, as Paul would say in Scripture, too puffed up. All right? Is anybody with me this morning? They know what it means to be the king of the world, and then you aren't anymore in an instant. For the past couple of weeks, again, we've been looking at this concept and the reality of suffering from all kinds of different perspectives. In week one, we took, uh, we took a look and we talked about what it means to have hope in suffering, that we can have hope in suffering. Last week, Ben came up here and did a great job of continuing to encourage us and talking about what it looks like and to have a focus on holiness in suffering, that as we live differently in the face of our suffering, we can bear witness to the power of Christ in our life. And this morning, I want to continue to bring encouragement. My, my goal all along has not to been to leave us down here in suffering and let us just wallow in self-pity and suffering, but to, to raise us up above that and to give us hope in suffering. Suffering doesn't have to seem senseless. It doesn't have to be purposeless. It doesn't have to feel hopeless. And as I hope you'll see and I hope you'll feel by the end of the sermon this morning, God's greatest work can be accomplished in the midst of your greatest moment of suffering. And the direction that I want to take this discussion this morning is that a very real humility happens in the midst of suffering. Not only does suffering humble us like nothing else can, but we can learn to navigate suffering with unique humility. Heat certainly has a way of humbling us, but it also has a way of forming us, shaping us into who we need to be, into who God desires us to be, even if that has to come with a huge slice of humble pie. Our journey towards understanding humility in suffering begins in the third chapter of Peter. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there as we continue to read along in this letter that Peter wrote to Christians back in his day who were suffering not only had they experienced some levels of suffering, Peter knew full well that they were going to experience unimaginable and unprecedented suffering in their lives. And we begin at verse number one of chapter three. And he says this, in the same way, and he's referring back to what he said in chapter two. I don't have time to go back and read that. I would encourage you to go back and read chapter two to understand what he's talking about here. It says, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. And he continues on talking a little bit about all the things that the ladies of that day would do. It's not all that different than what people do today. Try to dress themselves up and make themselves look all nice and wonderful. He says, don't worry about that stuff. He says, this is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. And he says it in verse 4, that they, they, they clothe themselves with a beauty that came from within. It's the unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. And then he says one verse, and now you may think this is very unfair. I know when, when every, somebody starts off with this and they're like, oh, gee, she's reading this scripture again. Wives, submit to your husbands. Everybody's heard this one before. And there's, there's like five verses, six verses here, and then he gives one to the husbands. But it's just as important. And he says, in the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. So she may be weaker than you, but she is an equal partner in God's gift of new life. And you may be sitting there thinking as I read these opening verses, this is a very strange place to start on talking about humility and suffering. 
And there are no wisecrack jokes at this point about your spouse being insufferable or your marriage being a place of suffering. But I believe that what Peter is doing here is he starts off and he talks to wives and he talks to husbands as he lays out in these opening verses and sets up what he says to all Christians later on. We're going to talk about that. And he backs up what so much of Scripture says, and it simply is this, two words, be humble. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't put yourself on a pedestal as it is so easy to do. Listen again how Peter lays this out when he addresses wives. I want to read this again in verse 4. He says, you should clothe yourselves with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is so precious, which is so valuable to God. The word that Peter uses for gentle here in these opening verses is a word that carries several meanings, describing a person that is not insistent on their own rights, a person who is not pushy, a person who is not selfishly assertive or aggressive, a person who is not demanding of their own way. Anybody know anybody in their life who acts just like that? Pushy, demands their own way, wants it their way. Oh, we didn't need the finger pointing. That wasn't necessary at this point, but... But we all, we all know that, right? And if we don't know that, guess what? You probably are that person. At some point in your life, you are that person. And such gentleness and such quietness of spirit, here's what happens. He's going to share this with us later. It becomes beautiful. It becomes attractive to, to a watching world, to everybody that is watching your life as you operate with gentleness. And this, this what, what, was the, what Bible would call meekness of spirit attracts the world. They see it and say, what in the world? How in the world could they act this? Especially in the face of suffering and trial and trouble. How can you be so hopeful? How can you live the way that you do? It's something, in fact, is what Peter says here is valued in God's eyes. And, and, and the question is why? Because, guys, it's exactly the kind of attitude that's the result of an enduring trust in God to supply our needs. When we, when we are humble, when we operate with a quiet and a meek spirit, it just communicates, I trust that God has this. The song that we just sang before the sermon, I let go, God takes control. That's a humble spirit to say that. And if there's one thing that God delights in, it's, it's trust in him. In fact, earlier in the letter we read two weeks ago in verse 5 of chapter 1, he says this, through your faith, God is protecting you because you trust, because you believe, because of your humility of spirit, God is protecting you. He says in the second part of verse 7, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold, so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and much glory because you trust God, because you have a humble spirit. In verse 9, he says the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Later on at the very end, we won't get to it in our preaching, but I want to read it. In verse 7 of chapter 5, he says, give all your worries. What does that sound like? When you give all of your worries to God, it says to what to God? I trust you. What a humble spirit. Give all of your worries to God because he loves you. Guys, when we are humble, it automatically signals that we are trusting God more and more. But it's Christ's example that Peter urges us to follow in all of the relationships of our life. He doesn't just talk to wives. He doesn't just talk to husbands. He starts at verse 8, and he talks to all Christians, all followers of Christ, starting there 
and continuing on, he says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a what? Not, not a punch, but a blessing. That is what, listen to this. This is such a key verse in this whole section. That is what God has called you to do. We could just stop right there. Like that speaks for itself. This is what God has called you to do, to be humble, to not pay back evil for evil. And it says he's not only called you to that, he will bless you when you actually act in that way, with humility, with meekness, with mildness. Guys, meekness is not weakness. Do you know who was called meek in scripture several times? Jesus. Was Jesus a weak man? Absolutely not. Guys, we don't need to be concerned about maintaining rights or grasping for privileges. I talked about that in week number one, that sometimes we operate with this idea and mindset that this world owes us something, that we get benefits. Guys, we don't. We don't belong to this world. We should rather seek opportunities to imitate Christ every time that we can in his service and in his humility. I love what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. He says this, talking to the people that are around and take my yoke upon you and let me teach you because what? Because I am humble and I am gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Because we submit and we possibly even suffer in humility for the Lord's sake, for the sake of the gospel. What does Jesus say as he's preaching his sermon on the Mount? He starts it in Matthew chapter five this way and he talks about what we call the Beatitudes, right? And there are three of them that I want to pull out really quick and just read them. Matthew 5, 3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for, their, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Verse 3, verse 5, he says, God blesses those who are what? Humble. There's that word. Plain as day. For they will inherit the whole earth. Matthew 5, 10, God blesses those who are persecuted, who are suffering for their faith, for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's the kind of life God rewards. In our submission, in our suffering, in our sacrifice, we follow the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the path that we take up. And in a shocking truth, suffering is not the opposite of blessing. We would look at that in life, when we look at our own lives, and we think, well, why, what's God have against me? Why can't I experience blessing? Suffering is not the opposite of blessing. After all, Jesus declared that those who suffered in righteousness, he just said it here in Matthew chapter 5, would be what? Blessed. He says it over and over again. Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, he ends his Beatitudes by saying this, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be what? Happy, joyful, be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. I've had a lot of conversation with people over the last couple, three weeks have been talking about this idea of suffering and about the hope that we have in eternity. And I understand that it is an incredibly hard sell to try to tell someone, guess what? Our reward is not here on earth. It's a reward that awaits for us one day in heaven. 
I know that's a hard sell. It may be a hard sell in your own life, but guys, it is the hope that we hold on to. It's the hope that anchors our souls in everything when life is just a mess. And I believe what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5 about being blessed for being persecuted and staying humble and being poor in spirit is exactly what Peter is referring to when he talks about suffering for doing good. If you are still in 1 Peter, I'm going to continue on reading. In chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he says this, Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. And then he says in verse 17, Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants. That is such an important phrase. Don't miss that. I'm going to read it again. It is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants. If that is what God wants in your life to take you and shape you and mold you and make you what he wants you to be, then it is to suffer for doing wrong. And here's what happens, guys, when we lack humility. When we lack humility, we trust God too little and we trust ourselves way too much. Humility leads us away from ourselves, and it leads us toward the sufficiency of God, that God is all that I need in life. In our suffering, we have nowhere else to go but to God. Humility has a way of truly revealing the holiness and the heart of God. We, we meet God. I said this week number one. I want to come back to it again. We meet God in the midst of suffering in ways that we could not do at any other point of our lives. We see God for who he is, for the care that he has for us, the heart that he has for us, the compassion that he has for us in those moments. Pastor Tim Keller, and he's an author as well, says this about suffering and trials and troubles. He says, trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable. We understand that. They're going to come. He says they will either make you or they will break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. Guys, suffering, trials, trouble, adversity in life changes us in ways that we don't understand. So I, the, the thing about it is we have to just kind of decide one of two things. I'm either going to be changed for the worse in this or I'm going to be changed for the better because it's going to change you one way or another. You just have to kind of decide what side of the fence you're going to fall in and that. And here's the question that I have this morning. What if your suffering, what if your tough time in life, what if your adversity that you're facing is precisely what allows you to see things about yourself that you would otherwise not see or not want to see about yourself. Think about that one for a minute. Isn't that just, that'll make your brain explode. Like, but that's, that's okay, Ryan. I, really, I don't really need suffering to see things about me. Yes, you do. And most importantly, you need suffering in your life and you experience suffering in your life and, and we embrace suffering in our life because it teaches us just how proud we are just how much humility we need in our lives. And, and that, therein lies the problem, guys. I really truly believe this, and I only believe this and say this because it's true of me as well. We are not naturally humble people. We're pretty proud of ourselves. We think we've kind of got it all going on most all of the time, if not all of the time. Guys, pride is, in essence, an elevation of yourself above everyone and everything else in life. You matter the most. It's a superiority complex run rampant. It thinks more highly of itself than it ought to think. I love this little story. Rabbi Simeon ben Jokai 
once said, if there are only two righteous men in the world, I and my son are the two. If only one, then guess what? I am he. I am the most righteous one in the world. Pride was the sin that brought King Uzziah of Israel to ruin. His heart was puffed up by his military might and his success. In 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, it says this, but when he, King Uzziah, had become powerful, he experienced all the success because of his military power. He also became proud. And then that last part is so important, which led to his downfall. Not too long after this, he was so proud of himself and he had everybody looking at him that he was struck with leprosy that he maintained until the end of his life, a horrible, horrible disease. I love this story. The valet of the last German Kaiser said, I cannot deny that my master was vain. He was very proud of himself. He had to be the central figure in everything. If he went to a christening, he wanted to be the baby. If he went to a wedding, he wanted to be the bride. If he went to a funeral, you've guessed it, he wanted to be the corpse. And for further biblical examples of raging pride, I present to you exhibits A and B, which actually happen to be two of my favorite stories and characters in the Bible. They're going to be very strange, I, I admit it, but I love what it says to us about what happens when pride enters into our lives. Daniel chapter 4 tells us the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, could there have ever been a more proud guy than King Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, you remember the story, right? He sets up this what? This 90, not 90 inch, not a 90 foot statue of gold. And he says, here's the deal. I don't care what other gods you worship, but when this horn, when the horns are played and when we call for it, you are all to bow down to this 90 foot statue and worship it. And we look at that in, in Scripture, and we're like, this guy is out of his mind. Guys, how many days do we put up, not, not literally, but figuratively in our lives, 90-foot gold statues of ourselves and say, look at me, worship me. Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. We do it, don't we? Just like King Nebuchadnezzar did. And he is so proud of himself, and he's so in the midst of his pride, and then a moment comes in his life where he is struck mad. Insane. He loses it all in an instance and goes through suffering. And here's what it says. After this time had passed, after he had gone through his bout of insanity, it literally says he was out in the fields with all the animals, chewing grass just like the cows would, drooling all over himself. The king, this is the king of Babylon doing this. After it had passed, he said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praised and I worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. Stop for just a moment. Like, go back to that for just a minute, Dan, please. There's a really important phrase that comes that we, probably, we just went right over. He says, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, did what? I looked up. Not to this 90-foot gold statue. I looked up to heaven. And this is the most pagan. Uh, he's horrible, guys. I mean, I, I can't go into this. But if you want to read about King Nebuchadnezzar, just go do it. He was a really bad dude. He killed people on, on the spot. When Israel went into captivity in Babylon, they, they wrangled up all the nobles, they wrangled up all the kings and the royalty, and they brought them right in front of Nebuchadnezzar, and he killed them. That's a bad dude. And in this moment of, of returning, from, returning to his sanity, he says, well, I looked up to heaven, and I worshiped, and I praised the Most High. I praised Yahweh, God. Continuing on. 
He said his rule is everlasting. His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop him. No one can say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and my glory and my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true, and he is able to what? Humble the proud. Here is a man in his life who experienced suffering. And this is a really interesting type of suffering. I call it suffering from a lack of humility. And sometimes God just needs to come in our life, and he just needs to chop our legs out from underneath us and to level us until we get to this point right here, just like Nebuchadnezzar. What was I thinking, he says. God is truly in control here. I am not. Second story that I love so much, and I want to read it. I know that I'm reading a lot of scripture, but I love these stories. Second Kings chapter 5 is a story of Naaman, the commander of the army and, or the king of, of Aram. And it says this. If you've never heard this story before, I find it so interesting. I want to stop and just read some words that come along the way to let you know that Naaman really thought a lot of himself. And the people around Naaman really thought a lot of him. It says, Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a, catch it, he was a great man. He was a great man in his master's sight, and he was highly regarded. There's another phrase. Because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He, he's, he's mighty in battle. The man was a brave warrior, but here's the deal. Don't miss this. All this stuff that we get, not even just a verse here. He's great. He's wonderful. Everybody looks at him and says, oh, Naaman, you're the greatest thing ever. He had a skin disease. He had leprosy. Guys, that's something nasty you don't just shake in a day or two or a week. Somebody gives you a medicine and it's done back in that day. That's something that was nasty and debilitating and killed you eventually. So here is this man who thinks so much of himself. All the people around him think so much of him. He's a brave warrior. He's won many battles. But he's going through suffering. It says, Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. Continuing on, she said to her mistress, if only my master would go to the prophet who was in Samaria. I just want to dig under this a little bit and what's, what's behind the words. If, if, if Naaman would just humble himself and he would just go to this guy, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and he told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore, the king of Aram said, go and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel and and catch it again. Here it is. They think so highly of themselves. And so he went and he took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel and it read, when this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and he asked him, am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure him of his skin disease? Think it over and you will see that he's only picking a fight with me. This king of of Israel says, what in the world? Why are you coming to me? I can't do anything for you. I need to send you to Elisha the prophet. It says, when Elisha the man of God heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he sent a message to the king, why have you torn your clothes? 
Have him come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. I could just imagine this. It's all this pageantry of Naaman coming, and here I am with all of my people and my 750 pounds of silver, my 150 pounds of goat, all these changes of clothes. I'm a brave warrior. Here I am, Naaman. And he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And what did he say to him? Elisha sent him a message. Here, I love this. Don't miss this. Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to him. He says he sends him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be made clean. And what did Naaman do? He said, all right, cool, I'll go do that. What does Naaman do? <laughs> Elisha. I mean, Elisha's messengers are not even Elisha. Are you, are you kidding me? Do you know who I am? I am Naaman. Like, I don't even need a last name. I'm just Naaman. I'm a brave warrior. Naaman got angry and he left saying, I was telling myself, he, Elisha, will surely come out. He will stand and call in the name of Yahweh as God and will wave his hand over the spot and he will cure the skin disease. And he continues on, Arnabana and far, far, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters. He says, how stupid is this? I came all this way, brought all this stuff, brought all these people. And I, I'm, I'm Naaman. I could have just stayed back where I was at and dipped myself in better water than this in the Jordan. And so he turned and he left in a little Baby hissy fit rage. But I love this point right here. Because Naaman can't get it because he's so proud he lacks any humility in his life, but his servants get it. His servants approached Naaman and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wonderful thing, that really showed how great and wonderful you are, you would have done it. Would you not have done it, he says. How much more should you do it when he tells you wash and be clean, simply. So Naaman went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the uh, man of God. Then his skin was restored and it became like the skin of a small boy and he was clean. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, catch this. Sounds very familiar and similar to Nebuchadnezzar. I know there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. Two men Two proud men who were laid low. Guys, it's not always the case that, that we necessarily suffer because of our pride, but we most certainly become strengthened in suffering through our humility. Peter's repeated call in his letter that we have been reading is to a call to think and to feel and to act in a way that can only be explained by an unshakable, all-satisfying hope beyond this life. The hope of being with God and seeing God and sharing in his glory. Tim Keller says it this way. As we get larger in our own eyes, less dependent on God's grace and revelation, and sure that we understand how the universe works and how history should go, that the problem of evil and suffering becomes so intolerable. Guys, when we become more and more puffed up, our suffering makes less and less sense. Guys, more than anything, suffering dispels the illusion that we have strength and that we have the competence to rule our own lives and to save ourselves. Martin Luther himself said, people become nothing through suffering so that they can be filled with God and his grace. Further, he says, it is God's nature to make something out of nothing. God does that all over the Bible. He says, hence, one who is not yet nothing, out of him God cannot make anything. 
And in a primary sense, suffering transforms our attitude toward ourselves. It humbles us and it removes unrealistic self-regard and self-pride. It shows how fragile we are. And this is going to come as a completely non-shocking truth. The average person in Western society has extremely unrealistic and unhealthy ideas of how much control we have over our own lives. And suffering has a way of removing those blinders and giving us a proper perspective of who we really are. Our times of testing don't so much make us helpless and out of control as they show us and they remind us that we have never been in control, that we have always been in second place, vulnerable and dependent on God. Suffering simply helps to wake us to the fact and to live within that reality. And that is nowhere more apparent than in the story of Job. And we've been talking about a form of humility that I said I call suffering from a lack of humility. Job's suffering was totally different. Job's suffering was totally mysterious. I mean, you can sit and read that book so many times and be like, no, I still, I just don't, I don't get it. Why? Why in the world would that guy have to go through everything? Job asked the very same questions all throughout that book. Job didn't suffer from a lack of humility. Job suffered in humility. And I love when you get to the end of the book of Job, there, there are two chapters where, I mean, like, there's a whole book where Job and his friends just sit there and go back and forth, back and forth, and you're just like, God, can somebody shut these guys up, please? And so finally in chapter 38, God enters in and he says, shut up, guys. And he challenges Job for two chapters, and I love this. He goes on and on and on. And I can just, I mean, imagine yourself if you're Job sitting there, and God himself has just given you the what's what. And it comes to Job chapter 40 and verses 1 through 5. God challenges Job for two chapters. Job speaks up for five verses, and he says this. The Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers. Then Job replies to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand, which would not be a bad thing for most of us to do on most occasions. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. Two chapters, God rails against him, and that's all he can say. I am nothing. And if that wasn't bad enough, God goes on in chapters 40 and 41 to challenge Job again. I mean, if you haven't just beat him once, now you've beaten him again. And as somebody has said, when what Job receives came to him only because God did not tell him why he suffered. Catch that. If you've not read the book of Job, please go do it. It's not the most inspiring and uplifting book. But you get all the way to the end of it, and you're like, God never does. God never gives Job. Here is why you had to go through that, the A, the B, the C. Here's everything that I've... He doesn't give him anything. It says the experience of suffering leads Job to a place where he loves and trusts God simply because he is God. Job becomes a person of enormous strength and joy who does not need favorable circumstances in order to stand up straight spiritually. This makes the suffering, or more accurately, the results of the suffering, a very great gift indeed. And it is doubtful. Listen to this, please. It's doubtful that this level of reliance on the grace of God can ever be gotten any other way. Not only for Job's life, but for all of our lives. So one Bible scholar says, Job never sees the big picture. He sees only God. But that's all we really need for all of eternity. God. 
and nothing more. The main message that rings clear by the end of Job is, I am God, you are not. Some things that God does and why he does them, you do not need to know and you never will, just like Job. I mean, I look at Job and I look at my life sometimes and how I go, but God, why? But God, but, but God why did you do this? How silly is it that we would ever question how God is doing something or whether his control is really all that order? It's, it's almost to me like a child who is learning math for the first time. Have you ever had a kid, and I know I was that kid at one time, who learned something at school and came home and be like, get ready for me to teach you something now. It's almost like that kid who has learned math for the first time that says, let me show you, great, world-renowned mathematician. That's how sometimes we treat God. God, let me, let me ask you a question on this one, because I don't think you've got it all together. Not just Job, guys, but all of us should hand each matter, the whole matter, over completely to God, more trustingly and less fretfully. And we should do it without insisting that God should answer first all of our questions. That's humility, what Job comes to in his life. Elizabeth Elliot was a, a lady who, if you've ever heard of the man Jim Elliot, he was a missionary over in Ecuador. He was killed trying to reach out to the indigenous tribes there. She remarried, and not too many years after that, she lost that husband as well. Just a, really a life of pain and suffering. And she says this, I, I love this, etch it into your brain. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship, he's worthy of my service, I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. I'm going to go back to 1 Peter very quickly and read to you some other parts of what he talks about in this section. He's talking about suffering for doing good says, instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you for your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this, again, you catch it, in a gentle and a respectful and a humble way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. And in the first part of verse 18, it says this. Christ suffered for our sins for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Guys, we are blessed beyond belief. He says that earlier in chapter 3. Do all these things. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. Be humble. Don't retaliate with insults. That is what God has called you to do. And if you do that, if you remain humble, he will bless you. God's goal, he says here at the end in verse 18, is to bring you safely back home to God. We are blessed. Job became blessed. He comes to the end of his bout with God and he says, again, I am nothing. I am worthless. God, you have my life. Guys, in our deepest moments of suffering, we can experience our greatest blessings if we would only remain humble. And the love of God turns the problem of suffering upside down. Far from being the problem, suffering gives us the opportunity to meet evil with good, to meet cursing with blessing, to, to meet hatred and arrogance with humility. Guys, here's what I believe. 
about all that I've said this morning and what Scripture gives us is the right approach to suffering. Suffering in humility can lead to remarkable growth and a right view of God and who he is. I found this interesting as I was studying this week. It's been noticed that people who have been through severe depression can become wiser and more realistic about life than those who have not. A number of studies show that people who have never experienced depression in their lives tend to overestimate the amount of control that they have over their lives. While severely depressed people are debilitated, in general, an experience of depression can give you a more accurate appraisal of your own limitations and how much influence you can have over your circumstances, which is very little. Guys, this is a story of so much of God's word, especially here in 1 Peter, as we've been reading that God uses suffering to reveal our weaknesses and to increase our reliance on him. Heat may hurt, but heat humbles. It refines us. It causes us to rely on God alone. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your trials. Don't waste your troubles. Step out of the shadows and step into the life, into the light of God. I want to share one more story as we end this morning and as the worship team comes back up here. This is totally random. I was watching the other night um, the NFL Network, which I don't know who who really watches that unless they're watching a football game, but I was. It just happened to be on. And they do these little things called a football life, and they take somebody who is a great in the NFL, and they tell about their life story. And the one that I caught the other night was fascinating to me. I mean, I would really seriously recommend this to everybody. I don't care if you don't care about football at all, but it was a story of Jim Kelly, and I don't have time to recount his entire life, but that man experienced heartache after heartache after heartache and failure and disappointment in life. Most importantly, he had a son who uh, was, uh, that had a, a degenerative disease and eventually died. And he says at one point in this little documentary, in this biography, he says, my wife chose at that moment to turn towards the Lord. And he says, I ran from the Lord. I did the complete opposite. And he said, in that moment of his greatest suffering and trial in his life, it was dark. It was horrible. But I, I believe as I sat there and I listened to his words, what God did in that moment was he humbled him. And then he turns in just the next moments of the interview and says, that I ran away from God, but I eventually ran back to God. And, and I, for the next five minutes, it was all about praising God and the Lord and what God has done in my life. And that he, he just, on and on, that is a man who is so deep in his faith. It was obvious in just those few minutes that I listened to that documentary. And so my question would be this morning is, is have you been running from God? Have you in your life become so proud that you can't even turn back to God? My, my prayer and my hope this morning would be that you would stop running, that you would lay down everything and that you would run back to God because he's waiting there with open arms to pull you back in. This morning as we sing this song, I would encourage you to consider that. And if you need prayer this morning, if you're battling something in your life, I don't know what that is, but that you can have prayer this morning. If you are come to your point in your life where you realize, I have never given my life to the Lord, that today is a day that you can do that in this moment. And so as we stand right now and we get ready to sing this song, don't be so proud that you don't make a move to run back to the arms of God.